What is going on, ladies and gentlemen of Love and Game Film? Welcome to the Love and Game Film podcast, the podcast that showcases a love of movies, of sports, of sports movies, things you love in general. I'm your host, JC DeLeon. You can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at JC DeLeon1. You can also follow me on Instagram and TikTok at those platforms with that same handle. You can follow the show on those same platforms at Love Game Film. Let's get into it because there's a lot to talk about in this episode. So, a couple of updates from some stories we've talked about since the show has come back. Uh, Lionel Messi has completely turned the MLS up on its head and come in and dominated this league in such a way... I think a lot of people are experiencing for the first time a soccer player being so dominant. They have played eight games since he joined them. All eight have been tournament games. The first seven games were for this new tournament that the MLS and Liga MX created called the Leagues Cup, which is a pretty prestigious tournament, even though it's the first year they've done it because, you know, like I said, it's the combination of uh, MLS Liga Mekis, which is the the best Mexican professional league. Uh, a lot of professional soccer players that provide good quality soccer for entertainment. Um, huge prize package. It's got a total prize package of forty million dollars. That's spread out among you know the team and the players and things like that. But among tournaments. Uh, this brand new Leagues Cup is one of the most prestigious as far as the the purse that the players can win. So Miami came in and just dominated this thing. They There was one game in which they went to extra time. There was one game in which they had to come back from being down, I believe, three goals. And Messi, being the magician that he is, just came back, led the team back in that game. But aside from that one game, Messi has been a dominant force in MLS since he joined Inter Miami, and it's not just him. Uh, he brought some of his uh, his teammates that he's played with professionally in Europe, uh, in Argentina, Sergei Busquets and uh, Jordi Alba. He also brought his coach Martino. I can't remember his last name, but it isn't just Messi. It's Messi and his friends. And in the celebration of the League's Cup, Messi he understood that. He came in in the middle of the season. He took a captain position away from one of the inner Miami players who, who had been there the entire season. And in celebration of the League's Cup, Messi would not lift the cup until that previous captain lifted it with him. Like Messi, for all and for everything that, that he appears to be, he appears to also just be a genuinely good dude. And I've seen him. Stand up for his teammates, his teammates that are brand new. I've seen him, you know, just be gracious with interviews, gracious with fans. As he's he's the greatest at his sport worldwide. He's a phenomenon, the likes of which sports fans in the U.S. don't really understand. Sports fans in the U.S. have a very myopic view of fame. I think in a lot of ways, like I think most Americans would probably think the greatest American professional athlete is Tom Brady because he won as great as he did. And he is the greatest NFL player of all time worldwide. Nobody knows who Tom Brady is worldwide. 
Lionel Messi is one of the most famous people on the planet. And he's been gracious enough to come into this American League. He wants to see this American League grow. And this American League is going to grow because of him. And it sucks for the rest of the teams that basically have to play against him because it doesn't seem as though this team is is defeatable. Eight games in a row. They've won. They won the League's Cup. Last night, they won a semifinal, which, to enter Miami's credit, they, they got to that semifinal before Messi got there. But uh, the semifinal of the Lamar Hunt Cup, or the U.S. Open Cup, I believe, and they won that game. Now, in that game, they were actually down. There was less than two minutes left. Miami was down 2-1. And just like the way a movie scripted Messi's first Inter-Miami goal, coming back, you know, scoring when there's no time left off a free kick. Messi just finds a seam when there's less than two minutes left in stoppage time. And he finds his teammate, uh, Campana. And Campana lands, Messi lands a perfect header right on Campana's forehead, back of the net and Campana has an interesting story too in the league's cup it was also a tie game right before the end of the end of stoppage time and Campana managed to find himself on a, on a run he found himself one-on-one one-on-one with the goalie chipped it over the keeper the ball was just slowly careening towards the net, but it was careening at an angle that was going to make it off out, out of bounds. Campana just barely misses the slide to kick it back into the goal. And Miami could have easily lost that game because he didn't tie the game at that moment, or he didn't win the game in that moment. They had to go to PKs. And Campana has his redemption. The very next game scores two goals. Both of them off his head. Both of them off of assists from Messi. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know if he's a magician or what, but, yeah, people were excited to see him come and they wanted to see him play, and they're getting to see the Messi effect at its fullest. I'm I'm 100% for it. I'm, I'm converted. I'm... I'm someone who's new to soccer and I've been looking for who my favorite soccer player is going to be. And I don't quite know if it's going to be Messi yet. He's 36 years old. He's towards the end. He's, he's got a good amount of years left. He's still clearly very dominant. Um, but I, I mean, I may, may find someone younger to be my, my favorite soccer player. I haven't adopted my favorite soccer player yet, but that's for, you know, I'll keep watching and we'll figure that out. But speaking of adoption, Last week, we talked about... Yeah, see how good I am at seam, seamless transitions? Last week, we talked about the movie The Blind Side. And the reason why we did that was because the subject of The Blind Side, Michael Orr, intimated that the family that seemingly adopted him, the Tuies, actually entered him into a conservatorship, and they never fully adopted him. And they've been in control of his money and his finances since he was 19 years old and he believes he was duped now since then there's been a lot of back and forth because 
what this is basically doing is destroying a family, which is an unfortunate thing. But it's a thing that I think the Tubies are guilty of. And it's a thing that, yeah, I'm fully on the side of Michael Orr. Now, at the time, the Tubies said that the reason why they went with the conservatorship is because he was 19, not 18, excuse me, was because Michael was 18 years old. And there was no path to legally adopt him or legally, officially make him a part of the family, you know, without, without a conservatorship. Well, People Magazine wrote an article this week that you could find with the... Attorneys explain what's, quote, puzzling about Michael Orr's conservatorship filing and what's next. So Google that on People Magazine and you can find this article, but basically... It states that Michael Orr was placed into a conservatorship at 18. He had no physical or mental disabilities when the conservatorship was put in place per the 2004 conservatorship order. An attorney named Stuart Crane found that very puzzling as there is a, there is a procedure to adopt an adult in Tennessee. So he doesn't know why they went the route that they went with a conservatorship because all a conservatorship effectively does is put you in control of someone's finances. Now, one of the unfortunate things about the movie The Blind Side and the reason why Michael Orr has been so against it from the get-go is that that movie portrays him as a simpleton who barely knew how to read and write, barely graduated from high school. Uh, According to this article, he got to Ole Miss and he made the dean's list his sophomore year. He is a smart guy. I've listened to him in podcasts since this news broke, I've rewatched the movie. I haven't seen the movie. I think I've seen the movie once when I, the very first time I saw it back in 2004 or, you know, 2008. Or... Yeah, if I was him, I'd be pissed about that movie too. Because, yeah, it paints him as somebody who, I mean, yeah, he, he may not have gotten out, may not have gotten himself out of the projects. But, you know, he was someone who was very determined from an early age. And he understood that a possible way out was through sports. So it's not like the Tuies found him in a puddle and brought him home, taught him how to play the football, the game of football. He already knew all of those things. And this movie will have you believe that the little tiny brother of that family and the uh, Karen-esque Leanne Tuie uh, taught him how to play. Everybody benefited from having known Michael Orr. His high school coach went on to become an assistant at Ole Miss. Um, his college coach, you know, parlayed greater greater moves after that, being at Ole Miss. Everybody who was around this kid benefited from being around him in ways that he did not. Now, granted, yeah, he went to the NFL. He had $30 million in career career earnings. He was a very good NFL player, but the way other people benefited in ways that'll translate to lifetime earnings. No, he didn't do that. He didn't get any of that. And that's, it's really unfortunate. Um, So I'm still on the side of Michael Orr, but this is a, this is going to be a very ugly thing. And one of two things has to happen. The Tuies are going to settle because they don't want anything about any of their finances disclosed. 
or this thing goes to a trial and everybody will discover everything because that's what happens in trials. And I think the two E's are going to end up settling. They very immediately caved and said, okay, we'll end the conservatorship. That's no problem, Michael. Why would they so easily cave to that request? We'll talk more about that, but uh, we've got some great movies to talk about. Well, we've got one good superhero movie, one fun sports movie, and then one terrible, terrible, terrible sports documentary. Do not watch it. I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about this documentary coming up here in just a little bit. Okay, Netflix. We've got to have a serious talk about whoever it is that let you produce this untold series. Whoever it is whose idea for this untold series, and for me, the veil has been lifted. And I kind of stupidly fell for For me, it started with the untold documentary about the malice in the palace. I thought, what an interesting subject. Somebody's finally going to do an in-depth documentary about this. Well, at the time, I didn't realize, and I had been so fascinated with the malice of the palace that, unbeknownst to me, I had pretty much all the information I was ever going to get from this documentary. Or, you know, yeah, uh, from this story. And so the documentary was, was good. It had a lot of good footage, but it didn't really provide me with anything new yet despite that I still kind of enjoyed it because I enjoyed the story and I'm fascinated by that story and on and on with the untold series they they've they've done that I kind of fell for it last week with the Johnny Manziel documentary I thought I had pretty much known everything there was to know about this kid come to find out the untold documentary does kind of reveal some information about you know, the lies that he told the media about where his money came from. And that was a big revelation. But I thought about it. And I thought about the last shot of the Johnny Manziel documentary. And it's talking about his redemption and how, you know, he's learned and is a different person now. And at the the very last shot of this documentary is him sitting in a chair holding a beer. And I'm like, the way he talked about his drinking and drug use and things like that, it seemed as though for him to have a successful life, he was going to have to lead a sober life. And that's never really talked about in the documentary. And like I said, in the final shot of the untold Johnny Manziel documentary, he's sitting in a chair holding a beer. And I'm like, he didn't learn anything. This is just, this was just a puff piece for you to say what it is that you're doing now and what you're going to do next, which is nothing. You, which is nothing. You've made enough money throughout your career and your life that it seems as though you're set. Eventually, at some point, you'll run out of money and you'll probably create a podcast that'll be more popular than this one, but that's okay. The Untold Documentary Series' latest episode is a four-parter. Now, on the surface, just like all the other Untold Documentaries, it seemed like this was the story to tell. It seemed like this is going to be the documentary to watch. The Urban Meyer regime of the Florida Gators from 2005 
to 2010. What a fascinating concept. Urban Meyer led this team to two national championships. Tim Tebow was the most popular football quarterback, college football quarterback in the last, I don't know how many years. Everything he did was magnified for the public. Everybody loved Tim Tebow. Yet, bubbling below the surface of this team, the Pouncey Twins constantly getting into fights. Percy Harvin getting into fights. Arrest upon arrest upon arrest of players in this program. This was a lawless program. They even had their own attorney named Hunley Johnson who would just wipe away any arrest, any bad thing that the players did, they got away with. Oh, and on this team was also a guy named Aaron Hernandez. You know Aaron Hernandez. You know what he did. So I think people thought this documentary was going to delve into all of that. It's four parts. How can it not? How can four hours of a story not delve into one of the darkest parts of it and right away things seemed very wrong with this documentary right away you're noticing that urban meyer is featured a lot in this documentary he's he's the interview subject of a lot of these questions slowly you start to realize Oh, this is a Urban Meyer puff piece. This is Urban Meyer's redemption story. Oh no, they booed Urban Meyer in his first game because he didn't know what he got into with the SEC because SEC football is real football. Blah, 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 blah. Don't watch this terrible documentary. I'll, I'll tell you everything you need to know about this documentary. So... Aaron Hernandez, Aaron Hernandez, maybe the most fast, maybe the most widely fascinating part of this documentary. People that don't like football know who Aaron Hernandez is. And if for some reason you don't know, Aaron Hernandez was a convicted murderer who played for the New England Patriots. And in some form, I don't know what he killed one of his friends and he got caught killing one of his friends. And in the investigation, people finding out who he was and all the gang ties that Aaron Hernandez had, uh, turns out that he's killed before over petty things, like a fight in a nightclub. Things that happen every weekend in America led Aaron Hernandez to murder while he was in college, while he was at the University of Florida, while he was under... Urban Meyer's watch. Four hours of this documentary, Aaron Hernandez is mentioned once. And the one time he's mentioned is when Tim Tebow was telling a story about how him and Aaron were trying to leave a club and somebody got in Aaron's face. Aaron started a fight. Not just a fight. The fight. If you... the. The brawl that happened at this bar has lived in college football lore. If you explore these kinds of things, and I'm not going to bore you with a lot of the details, but like this was a huge, momentous 
bar fight that people like around the country found out about. And the only mention of Aaron Hernandez is in context of this story, but the only the length of this story was basically Tim Tebow saying, I should have got him out sooner. And that's it. Not and it's not his fault. It's not anything he needs to be accountable for because apparently what people discovered was that this dude was a psycho killer. There's maybe a five minute part of this documentary that talks about how these guys would party and yeah, there was some arrests, but that's pretty much it. This documentary delves into urban Meyer, the disciplinarian, which is hilarious given everything I just told you. There is a horrendous part of this documentary that kind of sums up Urban Meyer as a person. He talks about, he makes mention at one point, the team is a core value of if you hit a woman, you're gone. And he talks about a promising freshman that he once had at the University of Florida who hit his girlfriend, got kicked off the team, and then subsequently, a few weeks later, overdosed on drugs. And that made Urban Meyer feel so guilty that they abandoned that kid and gave up on that kid that he vowed he would never kick another player off of his team. So basically, because of Urban's guilt, he got rid of that core value of you hit a woman, you're gone. Which, you hit a woman, you're gone is a good core value. You get kicked off of a team because you hit a woman. Whatever happens next is on you. It's not on the football team for kicking you off. Yet Urban claimed that guilt for himself. Never kicked another guy off of the team. Which is why the team ran rampant. Yet here this documentary is telling you that Urban Meyer is the master disciplinarian. That he kept his team in control. He didn't keep anything. Given that. Aaron Hernandez was on this team. This documentary has way too many instances of players saying they were trained to be killers. They worked so hard, they trained themselves like soldiers. They were tr- they were killers. They were trained killers. Like, stop saying that. Aaron Hernandez was on this team. You're calling yourselves killers. Come on. How was this documentary allowed to happen? It's the puffiest of puff pieces. Part three ends with, if you know anything about Tim Tebow, you know that at one point in his college career, Florida lost a game. And afterwards, Tim Tebow gave an apologetic speech and claimed that from that point on, he would give a thousand percent effort, whatever the stupid speech is. They, They emblazoned it on a wall next to Tim Tebow's statue on campus That's how part three ends. And the way this documentary ends with the postscript on Urban Meyer's NFL career is, my God, Urban Meyer, he got a chance to coach in the NFL. He coached in Jacksonville, which is close to where the University of Florida is. It's where Tim Tebow's. The NFL is so vastly different from college football that You know, players at that level are professionals. And professionalism means something different in the NFL than it does in college. 
And players don't need to be disciplined or motivated in the NFL the way they need to be in college, yet that's the that's the route that Urban Meyer tried, and that didn't work with his players. From the get-go, players did not buy in with Urban Meyer. And after 13 games and even a disastrous off-the-field moment in which he, like, you know, he gets caught in this bar maybe dancing or doing something you shouldn't do with a young girl. Not an underage girl or anything like that. Just a young girl. He's an, he's a grown man dancing in a weird way with a, with a young girl in a bar. Just things you don't do as an NFL coach. After 13 games, he was correctly fired by Jacksonville. The postscript on Urban Meyer's NFL career in this documentary is after 13 games, Urban left the NFL. Left the NFL. Like he didn't embarrassingly and spectacularly fail at his job that he was shit canned in such a public way. I remember when it happened. It happened at midnight. Like, it happened at midnight on a Thursday or a Friday. The Jacksonville Jaguars had a game the next day or two. And this dude is getting fired fired at midnight. Like, everything about his NFL head coaching career was an embarrassment from day one. Not even covered in this documentary. Now, to the documentary's credit, it was called Swamp Kings, and so it was about his time in Florida. But it, it gives him a chance to end the documentary by walking out onto the field in Gainesville, Florida and saying the first time I walked out onto this field, I knew magic could happen here. And it did. Man, the untold series. I have talked about one of the other untold documentaries before the one about Tim Donaghy, the disgraced NBA referee who was betting on games. And that documentary compared to a book written by somebody who spent years researching the subject, that documentary was also a puff piece for Tim Donaghy. And the way you know that is because Tim Donaghy is the most interviewed subject in that documentary. Everything was told from his point of view. You want the real story in a documentary? Nobody who was the actual subject is going to be the main interview subject of that documentary unless they're being completely forthright and honest in which and in this case urban meyer was not like nothing about this dude is above board and netflix netflix gave him four hours to just redeem himself when he is completely unredeemable just like this documentary don't watch this documentary it's four hours long do something else like do something else with your life Screw this untold series. IMDb doesn't even have who directed this documentary because I need to find out when that direct when that director graduated from the University of Florida because that's the only way somebody would have been allowed to make this farce of a documentary happen. Uh, this documentary, it, cut it from the team. Gets a one out of five for me. Screw this documentary. Okay, thinking about that Untold Swamp Kings documentary got me mad, so I needed that little break. But on to a happier film, 
Now, again, this kind of ventures into some dangerous territory because it's based on a true story the same way uh, The Blind Side was. And we've talked about, you know, how dangerous based on a true story can be. But I think, to me, I think there's a distinction between based on a true story and inspired by a true story. And although this does say in the beginning, based on a true story, um, the way it plays out, it plays out as kind of inspired by it. And to me, I think it made for a fun film. We're talking about the film Gran Turismo. Gran Turismo is, it's directed by Neil Blomkamp. Uh, Neil Blomkamp, who I was excited when I saw this because despite the fact that he's he's got some stinkers in his resume, he started with District 9, which I think is a really great sci-fi film. It moved on to Elysium, which is a pretty fun sci-fi movie. Uh, then you got Chappie, which is not great. But District 9 and Elysium are pretty great sci-fi movies, and sci-fi action movies. And one thing this guy does really well is direct action really well. And the thing about Gran Turismo, this biographical sports drama about motorsports racing, is it needs someone who understands high-speed camera work and high-speed action and this nails it um but we'll talk a little bit more about the story here um so Gran Turismo based on a true story of Jan Mardenborough Jan Mardenborough grew up as a he grew up as somebody who wanted to be a racer his entire life but never really went about the avenue to do it he basically would play the very famous racing simulator by the same name, Gran Turismo. And he became so good at it. At one point, the people of Nissan, and that's how you pronounce the car manufacturer Nissan, apparently, uh, Nissan, a marketing executive named Danny Moore in the film played by Orlando Bloom, had the idea of putting the gamers, the best of the best of the best gamers who excel at the Gran Turismo game, putting them inside a real car, seeing if those skills can translate into real life. Now, on the surface, this is a wildly stupid idea. Like, video games are definitely not real life, and this movie does hammer that into your head over and over again that this is not real life that you can't just press the reset button there's no reset button in life like we know that and this movie still kind of feels the need to hammer it into your head over and over again um they run a contest to see who is the best at this game and jan uh in very sports drama sports movie fashion He's got a job. He gets doesn't get along with his parents. His parents don't believe in his dream. All this, all the cliches are there. He even, you know, he's at work and he has to get to this. Um, he has to get to this tryout, and if he misses it, that's going to be his whole life. And sure enough, he gets there right in the nick of time. Like very cliche sports drama movie stuff. Um, at the academy, he's. You know, faced with an instructor who doesn't believe in him, but slowly wins him over. He's got competitors at this academy who don't like him. 
Uh, all, you know, like I said, all the cliches are there. And that's about the first third of the movie. Then it gets into when he becomes a professional racer and it delves into the ups and downs of that. And that is, can be pretty formulaic as well. Well, here's the thing. And here's the thing about me. And here's the thing about this podcast and why it exists. I eat that shit up. (laughs) Uh, I talked to some friends afterwards who complained about the very same things that I mentioned, like, Oh, and we're going to delve into some spoilers here, but you can read the real story. But yeah, at one point, he, Jan crashes his car and kills a spectator. Uh, Don't know whether or not that happened in real life, but it happened in this movie. And a friend of mine was watching it and he was like, yeah, like, he's like, I could even tell like, okay, this is the moment where he's going to crash. This is where it's all going to come crashing down. And then he needs his, his redemption story after that. Like, yeah, it follows a lot of the same notes of, you know, most biopics. And and the formulaic nature of music biopics, I don't like. But the formulaic nature of sports biopics, I do like. Now, one thing I'm going to be cautious of in the future, and I was going to be cautious... You know, and, and, and kind of this idea was inspired by the blind side and this and Michael Orr saying how much he didn't like the movies is how does it treat the subject of the film? And unlike the blind side, it paints Jan as somebody who really knows his stuff. He knows the cars inside and out because of how detailed the game is. And I've no problem with that. This portrays Jan as a competent driver from the get-go, which he is, as you learn in real life, as you learn in the postscripts for this movie. In, in real life, he has raced over 200 times. He hasn't won a lot. This, this movie will make you think he's a better driver than he is, but another thing this movie hammers into your head over and over again is there's only a handful of people in the world who can do this, and Jan is one of them. So the fact that he hasn't won a whole lot shouldn't deter from the fact that his is a story that deserved to be told, which is another thing that I'm going to be looking for in the future because of the blind side in sports movies is does your story deserve to be told? And Jan's definitely does. And the story of Jack Saltaire played by David Harbour. If you're a fan of David Harbour, you'll know you know him from Stranger Things. You know him from a lot of projects. If you're a fan of David Harbour, this is actually one of his best performances. Orlando Bloom isn't doing a whole lot. The writing, the screenplay isn't great. But David Harbour is genuine through and through. You believe that he believes in this kid. And he's charming, and he's inspiring. It's just it. It's one of my favorite David Harbour performances. After seeing this movie, uh, you've also got Jaiman Hansu in this movie. Um, those are about the only famous people in it: is Orlando Bloom, David Harbour, and Jaiman Hansu. Uh, the actor playing Jan Mardenborough, uh, Archie Maduke. I believe is how you say his name. 
uh, a British actor. He does a good job in this movie. He's been, uh, he was in Midsommar, which is a really good movie. Uh, he was in a movie called Teen Spirit, but he hasn't, he hasn't been in a whole lot. He's been in some television, but he's a British actor, so he's probably been in a lot of things that we haven't seen here in America. Uh, I want to see where, I, wanna, I can't, I don't remember him from Midsommar, but Midsommar is one of my favorite horror movies of the last few years, so I'm going to go back and look for him. But, yeah, he, he does a good job in this movie as, uh, as Jan Mardenborough. Jan Martinborough, the real person, actually served as the st- his own stunt double in this movie. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. Uh, the movie does run a little bit long at 134 minutes. Um, there's going to be some fluff that can be cut out. But the, I mean, the action of the racing moves so fast, eventually you don't really feel the runtime. You do it you do at parts. The courtship of his girlfriend wasn't really necessary. Because I, you know, you don't, you don't know if he ever married that girl, and it seems as though she serves a purpose of just trying to pass the Bechdel tests for this movie, which it doesn't. But overall, I mean, mot- motorsports is something I, is a sport I don't know much about. I'm trying to get into Formula One. Uh, I tend to work my full time job on Sundays, so it's hard to get into Formula One. Uh, it's going to be in Las Vegas this year, and so I think I'm going to try to get into it then. Um, I've tried to get into it when it happened in Miami. I live in Austin where there's a formula one racetrack. Uh, I still haven't really been able to get into it. I think European motorsports is far more interesting than NASCAR. Uh, the fan base is certainly more appealing than the fan base of NASCAR. Um, NASCAR has never just seemed, you know, that appeal of, you think of the old South Park joke of, oh, we're going to turn left sometime. We're going to turn left again. And they're all racing in a circle. Like, it's dangerous and it's exciting. It's never really been for me. I like the idea of Formula One with twists and turns. I'm of the video game generation that grew up with Mario Kart. And so that kind of racing definitely appeals to me. I've never played the Gran Turismo game. At the screening I was at, they had a demo of it, and it looks like a very difficult game to play because this because it's such an authentic simulation of racing uh, that it seems really difficult. Uh, I'm gonna give it a shot though. I'm gonna I'm gonna try that, and I'm gonna try to really get into uh, get into this sport. But the movie itself, it's a lot of fun. If you like sports movies, if you just kind of want something different from a sports movie. Like if, like I said, the writing isn't great. The acting isn't great except for David Harbor. If you want a more popcorn ish type movie with better performances and better writing. I mean, I suggest rush Chris Hemsworth is in that along with uh, Daniel Brühl. Uh, Rush is a great movie. Like I, I love that movie. Uh, Ford v Ferrari, fantastic movie. Movies are not made like that anymore. Ford v Ferrari is a fantastic movie. Those are better racing movies, but this one I think is just kind of really exciting. I like the, what's going to draw you into this movie, Gran Turismo, is the photography of it and how it's shot. It's really exhilarating. I think as far as the authenticity of the sport 
which is a big thing for me in sports movies. Um, yeah, I'd give Gran Turismo an A. I it is a fun movie. Overall, really liked it. I would probably give it three and a half out of five, which puts it between starter and an all star. Yeah, it'd probably it'd get some all star votes, but it's definitely going to start for your team. Uh, Gran Turismo, three and a half out of five. Uh, check it out in theaters this weekend. And we're going to close it out the way we always do with a review of a non-sports movie because while this is a podcast about the love of sports movies, we also just love movies in general. And this week we're going to talk about the new release that happened last week, Gran Turismo you can watch at this weekend. Blue Beetle is the first official entry into the James Gunn DC universe, although it was filmed as part of Zack Snyder's DC Universe. Um, that's all going to be a bit messy with with the strikes going on and nobody really filming anything. It's hard to know what's going to become of this movie or James Gunn's DC Universe. Uh, Blue Beetle uh, tells the story of Jaime Reyes, a recent college graduate who comes back home to discover that his father has had a heart attack but survived. His family's about to lose their house. There is a corporation kind of gentrifying the island that, you know, all these people, mostly Mexican and Latin, live on. Uh, so, you know, it's a good heartwarming tale of uh, all the things you like. Gentrification, superheroes, all that stuff. I sound cynical in my summary of the plot, but... Make no mistake, this is a really fun movie. <laughs> I listen. I'm not. I'm not a crazy. I'm not a Zack Snyder super fan or anything like that. I like his movies. I really loved Man of Steel. Uh, I liked. I liked Justice League. I liked Batman versus Superman. It had some problems, sure, but I think the way in which people went about really hating those movies and not even giving Zack Snyder a chance just because they don't like his style. That was an immediate turnoff to me, the way people just kind of revolted against the idea of him making these superhero movies. I I liked the Snyderverse. I'm not a crazy dude bro like Ken and Barbie. Don't worry. But I also really like James Gunn. Uh, I liked Slither, his very one of his very first movies from a few years ago. I liked the Guardians of Gal- Galaxy movies. Um, his brother's very funny. He was in the Gilmore Girls. I like the Gilmore Girls. See, I contain multitudes. Anyways, <laughs> um, so I was looking forward to this. Based on the trailer, the trailer was really fun. Um, the character of Jaime Reyes uh, seems to have a very funny Mexican family. George Lopez is in this family. I fucking love George Lopez. I'm Mexican. I have to. I think the biggest problem people are going to have with this movie, aside from the mostly unknown cast, of which Jaime Reyes is played by Zolo Maraduena, who may not sound like a name that you know, but if you've seen Cobra Kai on Netflix, you know who Zolo is. He's one of the main characters of that show. Uh, Blue Beetle... If I had to find a Marvel equivalent of Blue Beetle, I mean, he 
he looks like Iron Man, but it's basically an alien entity that sort of takes possesses the body and kind of turns you into Iron Man. But I don't know. There's not really a Marvel equivalent to Blue Beetle, I don't think. Um, Blue Beetle kind of seems to be a combination of Green Lantern and Iron Man, which is which makes for an interesting combination. I think I think a lot of people who don't read a lot of comics, like I, I don't anymore. I used to when I was a kid, but people who don't read a lot of comics now, I think in the trailer when they saw the clip of of the the entity that that is the Blue Beetle talking to Jaime saying, you know, I can create whatever it is you can think of. That sounds like Green Lantern to me. And so if this is going to be it, this is going to be a superhero universe that have two characters whose superpower is to come up with anything they can imagine. Well, that's going to be kind of boring. But the idea of Blue Beetle, I think, is a lot of fun. Uh, it It's a fun movie. It's really funny. The Mexican family is great. If you're Mexican or Latin in any way, I think you're going to see a lot of your family in, in this movie. Uh, Susan Sarandon plays the villain, which is strange and unusual. But when you think about the the way that this island is being gentrified and the big giant corporation that it is, it kind of makes sense that it'd be led by, by an old, older white lady. But no, the action here is really good. The director, Angel, Angel Manuel Soto, he's directed a lot of short films. And the fact that Warner Brothers in DC would give a chance to a relatively unknown director, I think is really cool. And this dude really embraced the opportunity. Definitely made the best film that he could. As far as where it's going to fit with the James Gunn DCU versus the Snyder DCU. So this was made during the Snyder DCU. And it, it, does, it looks a lot different from any of the Snyder movies. For one, it's not very dark. But, you know, like LexCorp is is in this movie and his uncle talks about Batman being a fascist and Jaime himself even mentions Superman. So this is a world in which Superman, Batman, Lex Luthor exist. So clearly it it can be transferred to James Gunn's universe. The the way the story's told, I don't know if parts of it were cut out or anything like that. It, you know, it's 127 minutes, so it's already over two hours long. If anything was cut out from making this a longer movie that tied it to the Snyderverse, that's probably a good thing because 127 minutes is just about the correct length for a superhero movie that you want, especially for an unknown character uh, in in an all Latin family that you 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 don't quite know how people are going to embrace it. Uh, if the decision was to cut out scenes that tied this to Z- to Zack Snyder's DCU, that was a correct decision. Um, there's not really anything tying this to James Gunn's DCU because it's well, it's brand new and he hasn't really filmed anything yet. But I, I welcome I welcome a sequel to this movie. I think Zolo did a really great job. I hope George Lopez comes back for the sequel, uh, and it seems like he will because of what he does in in this movie and the type of character that he is. Um, A lot of fun with this movie. Uh, Three out of five solid starter. 
of the you know in my superhero basketball team i'd probably I'd, i would definitely put blue beetle in as a starter given what he's capable of doing yeah starter starter solid three out of five for blue beetle check it out this weekend and uh that's gonna about do it for this episode of love and game film thank you for listening if you listen the whole way you're a person that i love and you're a person that i love in this world thank you for listening to this uh weird rambly thing that i do every week uh you can follow me on twitter instagram tiktok at jc Deleon one you can follow the show on those same platforms at love game film uh if you like the music in the intro and the outro of these episodes i should mention that that's a buddy of mine named physics you can find him on spotify phz s-i-c-k-s physics uh, his music is fantastic. He's, it's it's weird that he's a friend of mine because he's also one of my favorite rappers. Uh, his music is amazing. Check it out. Um, yeah, that's gonna about do it for this episode. So until next time, we are out. Thanks, guys. <laughs>